Imagine all of your professional or career goals coming true, and you built a business that had a great brand and employed hundreds or thousands of people. But within a span of a few short years, it was completely gone. That's what's happening in American business these days, and we want to know why. Welcome to Brandology Podcast, where we discuss the rise and fall of great brands and the leadership methods which built them or took them down. Your brand is everything that matters. It's your culture, finances, marketing, and leadership. It's your brand. Protect it. Welcome everyone to Brandology. This week, we have special guest Tom Totten, PhD, founder and CEO of several startups. He's going to share that with us. He's going to talk about social responsibility and leadership and what that means to the organization that he's now founded with his family. So let's begin. Welcome, Tom. Uh, my name is David Morrow. Um, Mark Mosher is with me in the studio. Hello. And um, uh, welcome. Uh, we're really Thank glad you very to much. be here. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, just from the from the top. You know, what's your current role? I know that you had um, developed two companies. Uh, looks like, and you had um, either sold them off or moved on from them. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But just currently, sure. what are you doing? And then, um, uh, you know, just regardless of title, kind of just explain mm-hmm. what you're in charge of. Sure. Uh, I just started up another company, and in that company, I founded it. I'm working it with my kids. And it's kind of not what I used to do, uh, but it's a firm that helps companies find their vendors, but in a socially responsible way. So I'm trying to look at doing this a little bit differently. Prior to that, uh, I had run two other companies which were sold, which we can talk about at, at a later time. But uh, but here, this is today what I'm doing. I'm doing it. I'm kind of headquartered at the University of Notre Dame, primarily because I taught there for the last two years to mm-hmm. act, what we call actuarial students, and since I went to undergrad there, I kind of loved the place, and it was hard to leave campus, so sure. I thought, heck, I'm going to throw my bubbles in here, and, and off we go. So, yep. so now I'm running that little company. That's great. That's great. I actually went to Loyola, so I'm I'm well aware of uh, Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, in Chicago? Yes. And Beautiful so, school. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it doesn't have Touchdown Jesus, and it doesn't have all of the... The, uh, the 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 campus that 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 domers receive, but uh, well, you got Lake Michigan on your shore, so it's yeah, great. we do. That's right. It's yeah. exactly. Right. It's hard to challenge hard to challenge Notre Dame for campus uh, beauty and aesthetics. Yeah, well, it is a pretty place, and you know, actually, when I was done teaching, you know, what I was missing, obviously, we're in this pandemic issue. But when you walk onto campus when it's snowing, and you see the snow over the Golden Dome, it's very pretty. So mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. So real quick, and when you when you're teaching at Notre Dame, the, you mentioned they, they were actuarial students. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So is it um, students that are majoring in actuarial sciences? Yeah, it's basically uh, they hired me as a practitioner versus what I would call your typical professor mm-hmm. uh, to teach at specific classes to prepare students who wanted to become actuaries and. To me, it was just a wonderful experience because it just kind of intimidated because, you know, when you're sitting there looking at your class, and I already knew they were smarter than me, um, so I had to be careful. 
So I got to make sure that I they can just sit there and go, man, you did the math wrong. And right. uh, so, but but for me, it was very much great to come back home, and it hopefully actually shape shape some of their careers. And so that was the most important thing was to deal with the students, help them find jobs, and the math was the math. But um, um but actually helping them go on their way to what they're going to provide back to the rest of us, you know, over the next 50 years, uh, is, is, is certainly very satisfying. That's having great impact. I mean, that's that's really influencing their lives. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And I will say they influenced me too. The one thing I will say about my experience there, they have given me hope about the future. So that's yeah. what the students did for me, so. Right, that's, that's exactly right. Excellent. Let me ask you, Tom, um, with some of the, the diverse things that you're involved with, what are maybe a couple key initiatives that you're involved with you know, right now today that, that you're really excited about outside of the new company, obviously, but uh, are there anything anything else that you're involved in that's got you excited? Well, you know, um, the nice you know, this pandemic, I'm sure, has changed people's lives and how you view certain things, right? And it right. certainly has for me in terms of what is more important in the world. And so, uh, we're all kind of cooped up and doing our thing, but, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I'm still fairly athletic. I, when I say that, I ride a bike. So I'm biking okay. across the United States. I'm going to try to hit every state out there. But to me, that's also part I may of join the you. Time. What's that? You I may <laughs> join you. I love cycling. I cycle David, the David's an avid rider. All right, yeah. good. Okay, so what bike do you ride? Day. What kind of bike do you ride, David? Well, I used to ride, I used to have a Canon and okay. uh, absolutely loved it. But how about you? I, I ride this 2006 Orbea Orca. Uh, it's an old, older bike, but yeah. it, it just fits like a glove. So yep. that to me is just, as you know, as a biker, you want it to fit. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. People always look for that instant comfort. It's like oh, you can be on this thing for eight hours. You better <laughs> get hurts. really comfortable. It's it kind of hurt really well. No, it is. So 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 biking actually is a big part of my life, and and I have a couple kids who do it on and off with me, so it's kind of nice. Oh, very cool. That's great. I can't get my kids to cycle with me. Well, you know, I noticed, you know, as you probably noticed in this time, the bike shops went crazy because oh, people yeah. actually started oh. getting back on bikes. Oh, so, yeah. So Absolutely. Good. That's good. So I want to ask you about your current company. But even before yes. that, you know, you were talking about the, the current company. You started with your kids, so obviously, yep. and you know, you ride with your kids. You're obviously close with your family. That's phenomenal. It's how I was raised. Mark is really close with his kids. Um, what? Uh, um, what's your? What's your cause? What's your purpose? Like, what's well, the? What's your? You know, that Simon Sinek. Why? Sure. You know, yeah. what? What? What is that? Because you, you founded this new company um, to do this in a socially responsible way. What does that mean, right. and, and what, what does that reflect on your cause? And, you know, I want to move the needle in the way capitalism works. And what I'm kind of saying in that, and we've seen this stuff kind of happen with companies taking stands on things today. You know, FedEx says, you know, no more Redskins, uh, or whoever it is, Starbucks is not going to advertise on Facebook because of whatever the reason is. So there's a, what I consider to be a heavy cause here. And a cause here is that I was listening to Randall Stevenson talk from AT&T and he said his employees were asking him, and given all the social unrest we have, is what are we doing as a company? And what do companies actually do? And so what we try to do here in this company is to say, one of the ways you can prove you're doing something different is to make sure you're partnering with the type of entities 
that fit the same thing as who you are as a company. So, you know, then you're, if you look at some of the most socially conscious companies out like Patagonia or North Face or things like that, they have a very strong mission in what they're trying to do. Maybe it's environmental. It could be diversity. It could be a number of different things. So here, the pattern I've taken is if you're in human resources at a company and in my field of the benefit side, which is like a 401k plan or whatever retirement plan or healthcare plan, are your partners at least somewhat in line with what you're doing too? And you're not just picking a provider that's just the cheapest one or this else, but you know, will they actually help service some of the same missions you are? And so that's now the cause. The cause is actually trying to match up companies together that have similar type missions and, and work with each other. And if that's the case, maybe over time, more companies will say, hey, you know what? I probably need to think more than just simply my shareholder. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a capitalist and everything, but uh, but maybe I need to do things above and beyond that. So that's where I would say the cause is to move the needle that way. Maybe when you don't just look at your vendors, you don't just look at the bottom line and other things. You look at other things which are more qualitative. And quant it's gotta be quantitative too. Just say that this fits with us at the company. So in terms of being socially responsible, you mean like if there's three vendors that you're choosing yep. from and two of them are destroying the earth, they don't have right. a good culture for their people, they don't value things other than profit, they have profit before people, right? And you right. have another one that might be 10% higher, 15% higher, so the numbers are a little bit poor, but they're not so skewed that it, that you can still have a good reason to still select them. Exactly. And, you know, it's not like this has to be the only reason, but I think you should consider it in the process, you know? Oh, I think so, too. Yeah, so I, I think, I, I think so. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that even in, in, in our field. When, when we engage with clients and we're doing work, um, we do, you know, um, we do a lot of security, cybersecurity. And when sure. we do yeah. that for, for, for clients, we want to know that they care about their brand, that they care exactly. about their people, and that there's a reason behind these tools and these services that we're providing. Um, because you know, I, I believe I'm a huge believer in um, the tenants that you know, not just Simon Sinek, but a lot of his group, mm -hmm. that group that's all kind of related there. Um, that people want to do business with people that kind of believe what you believe, and right. and exactly. I've. I've been living that for 30 years. Like every time we close a big deal, it's because yeah, they could. I could invite them over to my family's house. Like they could be sure. over. Like that. I mean, feel good about it. Yeah. Like that's. There's a reason we did business, right? Right. So um, yeah, that's so interesting. That's great. So it, it's just taking it a little bit further and actually just formalizing it more. And since a lot of the business in this field is done by request for proposal, it's just we could ask certain questions. If you want to, I'd rather work with a company. Oh, you issue the companies. RFPs. Sure, yeah, you right. issue the RFPs. Oh, that's great. And so there's your process. That's how you get yes, your and checks then, and balances. And then, you know, you can ask them very quantitative stuff because it doesn't have to be words. It's like, I want to know if they take care of their employees. How do I know that? Well, do you pay a bunch of their health care premiums to your employees? Are you taking care of them? Are you making sure they can retire so you're giving them money? That's one way to measure things. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other stuff that has to do with other types of things. But yes, it's in that process. You want it to be very defined. And, and, and you know, I call it up, put down a paper and pretty easily scrutinize. That's great. So where'd you get the name, Epi Noir? <laughs> well, uh, you know, some people have figured it out. And uh, I honestly actually, am not that sure. So it's no, okay. that's okay. It's not meant to. <laughs> 
French words put together, and, and you know, it's going to sound ominous, which is unfortunate, but I can't help it. It stands for Black Sword, and it has everything to do with of course. books I read of as a course. kid. Yeah. And so I shoved the two words together, and I have a tattoo of it on me anyway. Oh, you do? Very interesting. So it's been ensconced in me permanently. But Black uh, it's Sword. It's from a series of books. But yeah, and so... So it sounds ominous, but to me, what it's really all about is that we're we're pretty strong in a mission, and uh, you're gonna feel it coming. And That's so, really cool. you know, so at the end of the day, because since I am doing this with my kids who have taught me everything in this world, they're true believers in this mm-hmm. in social causes and stuff like that. So it's like you know, you're fighting against true believers. That's a different problem, you know. Oh yeah, yeah so, so. absolutely, absolutely. Time for a quick break. Hey, everyone, we wanted to invite you to learn about the rise and fall of one of the world's most iconic brands. In our upcoming bonus episode, we will explore one man's brand that he created when he returned from World War II, recognizing the baby boom and capitalizing on it. He grew that brand to more than $12 billion, and yet only in a few short years after it goes public, it is dissolved in bankruptcy court. It's not what you think. It's not due to economic downturn, big box stores, or even Amazon. Come find out what happened when we explore the rise and fall of Toys R Us. And now back to our episode with Tom Totten, founder CEO, in the discussion on social responsibility and leadership. These two companies, it's Voltaire and Nyhart. Yes. Right? Nyhart, you've you've been doing since it looks like '98, and yep. uh, you sold that off in June recently. Right. And then Voltaire, you started in '16 and sold yep. that off in June as well. Okay, well, so it, both of these, both of these were actually technically sold off at the end of December, but I stuck around till June. Right. Okay. Right. Yep. As, but that's as most, yeah, as yeah. most acquisitions involved, yes. they always have that. But you kind of love transition. Yeah, you have to have that the founder involved after you buy it. Otherwise, all everything leaves. Right. It could well. It could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully exactly. You build it so it works, but you know. Right. So uh, t- tell me about Nyhart. It was back in 1998. Um, Clinton was president, I believe. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So Clinton was president. I remember those days. So. Yeah. Um, uh, the market was good. Things were good. The economy was strong. It mm-hmm. hadn't popped yet. I don't think. I don't think it had, the dot com bubble yeah. had crashed. People were starting March to freak out. Yeah, people were yeah. starting to freak out about Y two K, which was yep. oh, it was ridiculous. So, um, what got you to what was Nyhart, and what got you to um, to start that company? Well, and I, I didn't start this one. This was a company that was around for 75 years. Oh, okay. And Very good. Yeah, okay. The Voltaire idea, but Nyhart's been around. It's been a long instant in Indianapolis institution. I was hired in 98. The CEO hired me to handle, and I'm an actuary. He's an actuary. He wanted me to, you know, kind of take over some of his clients. Um, so I did. And then in 2006, I became CEO. But during this time period, you're right, the economy in the late 90s were great. The company was growing pretty well. We had an office in Indianapolis and an office in Evansville. But the composition of the company was very strongly healthcare related. And my field, the retirement side, was what the firm started as was, was, was minority to everything interest. But 
in the nature of the business of this time period, the retirement side made money. The healthcare side struggled to make money, but it grew real fast. So you had this kind of, you know, a lot of companies could have this problem. It's like, I've got one piece of thing growing really fast. The other one's growing fine and making money. What do I need to be? And so in 2004, I was on the, I got added to the board of directors. And at that time, we made the decision to sell off 70% of the company. It's, it's an interesting problem because not the ownership of the company was owned by the employees. The employee, this is a very, only like 0.1% of companies are structured this way. It's called Nissan, but so the employees got to vote on whether we wanted to sell off 70% of them off to another group, which means they don't know if they have a job. You know, it's a right. very, very wow. odd situation. Because right, all the voting shifts. It does. I mean, you sit and say how this is going to work out and you have to explain to them why. And the why was the future we did not think was there for the healthcare side. Uh, because we're in Indianapolis, Anthem's in our backyard. Um, it's tough to compete against them. So nonetheless, that's what happened. And during that time period, I took over and we sold off 70% of the company. The company at that point had 50 employees after we were done. We had 100 and, uh, and we had about 16 million in revenue, which shrunk down to seven. Uh, but after that, after I took over, we fortunately I was fortunate enough to have a lot of great people who worked with me, and we were able to take that company up to twenty-five million dollars in revenue in a pretty pretty quick amount of time. Like I said, wow. it was a very profitable organization. And then and along that time, Voltaire, I went back and got my doctorate, just for the heck of it. But I wanted to study a very specific problem. The problem is, <laughs> is you know, if you got a pot of money when you retire. How do you make it last your lifetime, which is a very actual right. problem. So we've set up Voltaire to help solve people with that problem. So that was how Voltaire got started in 2016. And so the company through that time period, and, and like I said, had great people who worked with us. Uh, we grew pretty, pretty hard. And I technically retired from the CEO position in 2018. And another person took over and I remained as chairman of the board. And then it was decided in the fall of 2019, which timing wise is a real business lesson here. We decided that, you know, the market was gone crazy. Multiples in general in the business were really high and companies have been nipping at us over these years all the time. We decided to actually listen. And in that we decided to sell the employees got to be informed about this, but what we're very proud of is out of 140 employees, 25 became millionaires. Um, two thirds wow. of those people who were millionaires were staff. Wow. We had, we had secretaries with, we had secretaries who walked out the door a couple million bucks and it was gone in the retirement plan. So that all happened in December of 2019 um, to a firm called a census. And uh, for it was, to me, it was a very much a great success story for an employee-owned company to have that many people, percentage-wise and everything, become millionaires and secure their retirement. Because this was retirement money. That's where their right. stock was sitting. That's and a great story. It happened because we were really good. I mean, we're a good company. So yeah. great people who work there. That's fantastic. I mean, I love to hear that, too, because that's just, I mean, that kind of goes right along the way, right along the lines of, the social responsibility that it you does. exhibit now, right? I mean, you're taking, care, you're taking care of your people. And it, that was the beauty of the way that company was structured because the wealth 
was widely spread among the employees. It didn't concentrate itself into one owner. Now, you know, businesses are businesses and they're structured the way they are, which is fine. I don't, I don't, I don't have any qualms with that. But from an ESOP employee-owned perspective, it was spread really wide. And so that com- that's the great thing that can happen. The negative thing can happen is you screw up the company, everyone pays for it too. I mean, it's post right. We just happened to have a great team that took it over the way. And the employees believed in it. And that makes it for a different place when your employees believe in that. So, How did you get started in the actuarial field? Well, to me, it's kind of a funny story because when I was a senior at Notre Dame, my math professor, my advisor asked me, what are you going to do with your math degree? I said, I don't know. And he goes, why don't you go take this thing called actuarial exams? And, and, um, one half of all vice presidents in the insurance industry are actuaries, which are just mathematicians who price things, right? They tell you how long you're going to live, which is actually kind of interesting yep. when we got a pandemic. But um, so I said, all right, I'll take the actuarial exam. So I didn't study for it. And I walked in, took the exam. It was in November of um, 86. And I said, well, I didn't pass that bad boy. So I just forgot about it. And then in January, I got my results back. And weirdly enough, um, um, you know, I actually did pass it. And then I said, well, I better take it seriously. And so I did. So I went on to grad school. And so from that point, I had decided to become an actuary. And I went to Ball State to get my master's degree at that point in time. And then then they got my first job as an actuarial student. So it was because of a professor who asked me, what are you going to do with your life? And had I not passed that actuarial exam, uh, you know, I'd, God knows where I'd be. But I, I got... You know, I'll label that stuff as luck. So it all worked yeah. out, and it worked out well. So that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I I remember um, back in the '90s, I I started as a trial attorney, and I would practice, oh, okay. and I had horrible hours, and I was just yep. getting getting beat up. And we some of the younger trial attorneys would would stick on the refrigerator, you know, the mm-hmm. highest quality of life, and number one was like actuaries. And we were all looking at each other like, we have to figure out what they're doing and who they are so that we can somehow make it to like dinner one time with our families because we were never there. You guys we were missed, working we a lot, holidays. You? Yeah, we missed yeah. holidays. We missed everything. Yeah, that's so Actually, interesting. Yeah, you know, for the right actuaries, you're right. The life's pretty easy and you get paid yeah. well. So. That's yeah, so interesting. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, that that one interaction put you on a course in a direction that brought you here. Did you ever think when you were when you were a child that you would be doing something like that? Did you see yourself there? No, you know, I, I could say weirdly enough, just personally, what I've learned about myself as we probably all reflected this time in life backwards on how things operated. I really never really, weirdly enough, had a plan. My dad had a plan for me because he wanted me to go to <laughs> West Point because he, you know, and, he wanted you to go to West Point. College. What's that? Wow! Did you say he wanted you to go to West Point? Yeah, I've got. I got my nomination to go to West Point and the Air Force Academy, and but then I got in Notre Dame, so I had to take my pick. But he really kind of wanted me to go that route, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I, I never did, so I just kind of went to school because I was I was good at math, frankly. So I just kept it going. So no, I you know I sit there and go, you know, you don't really have to know. But like you said, the professor who had that great effect on me, that's why going back to Notre Dame, I was just hoping that maybe sometime, you know, some student would look back 40 years from now and go, hey, you know, he actually, I actually, he actually made sense. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, well, with the, um, with the birth of your new company, 
Yeah, with the birth of your new company, I'm just wondering because we, a lot of the business owners and uh, the leadership teams that we talk to have been a part of something, you know, a brand that had been around long before they came on board. But I'm, I'm interested and curious with this, this new company that you started, has there been a big challenge you've had to overcome? Is there something, anything that's come up that, um, that you were able to turn around? Well, you know, since we're so new, I will say this. I mean, I can see where it's the things that are going to be very tough. It's, we're trying to change the nature of you doing business in terms of you should consider more things than just the numbers, you know, and actually the other stuff is numerical too. But um, so there's going to be a heavy dose of skepticism, you know, so having to get companies beyond that, that's why starting with companies which already have this built within their missions. And if you look at certain things, certainly universities already do. You know, if you're not for profit, you know, as a consultant, when I was an actuary, I still am, but I always loved working with certain types of clients and those clients who had a very much what I call strong mission to them that was other than a product. Uh, and they were there for their employees. They were much more satisfying for me to work with. So trying to work with them first, but if you're trying to work with the raw uh, capitalistic you know, bottom line company, it's going to take some time. Right. But now that yep. we see what's happening, you know, big picture, it's going to start with the biggest companies too. It's yep. going to be the biggest yep. companies. It's not going to be the small ones. So overall, I think those are the challenges that have to be taken for us. And like I said, I've got, fortunately, I have some very, very strong willed children who are more than willing to try to climb any mountain and <laughs> and understand, as you guys, as you all know, to, to take a no, you know, we're going to take no's. And you just got to find that yes. So, yeah, we take no's all week until Friday afternoon when we <laughs> finally get a yes, and it's all yeah, worth exactly. it. Exactly. That's right. Then you can have that beer, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, well, let me ask you because we and we ask, you know, because we, this is what we want to learn from. Are, do you see the impact of the? advances in the leveraging of advances in technology, right? I mean, it's helped yep. grow businesses. It's also yep. hindered some. And yep. I find a great deal of them don't take, I mean, I'm shocked by how many of them don't take basic blocking and tackling measures when it comes to yep. cybersecurity and things like that. And I don't want to talk about cybersecurity, but I, people value their brand. They'll go and spend all this money on salespeople and marketing and, and web development and all that. And yet they're not even protecting it when it when they're leaving things wide open. And unless they don't watch the news, I don't know what, I don't understand why, why not? Even if they, even if they never purchased from us, I'd be fine with right. it. I just want them to be protected because I, we literally are seeing in our job, we literally see businesses that have been around for 15 years, 20 years. There's a law firm that's been around since 68, shutter their yep. doors six months after a data breach. Yep. And they could have easily have avoided, I don't, I don't want to say easily have avoided, but the cost to avoid it in prevention was so nominal compared to right. ignoring it and being, and just being, I don't know, keeping your head in the sand and then all of a sudden it just gets destroyed. Well, and I completely agree with you. You know, what I would always say that the biggest risk that faced us at NIHART was something like a cybersecurity breach because we had a million social security numbers in our databases. You come in there wow. and you, what you don't want is in the front page of the Indianapolis newspaper saying, 
hey, guess what? Nyhart got breached and your social security number may be exposed, right? Exactly. And that's going to shut down the business. Exactly. The trust is lost. Um, exactly. And so I certainly believe that. And having been on boards of other entities, that's one of my questions I always ask is, tell me about the cybersecurity. You know, I've been around enough and I've seen this happen where someone's got a laptop they leave behind and it's got stuff right. on. It wasn't, exactly you know, right. Boom. And, you know, these are the things. And, that's, and if you look at this, with this pandemic um, today, it was reasonably easy for companies to actually offload and have people work from home. Ten years ago, I kind of wonder how it would have shook then. Mm -hmm. you know, we had to forward enough thinking over time, technology, we took place. But 10 years ago, it may not have been, it may, it may have just ground a halt for many companies. And I still think that, you know, you can look at the cybersecurity issues the same way. If you haven't done it, it, it'll, just, it'll just knock you. And, uh, and I don't really care what type of business you're in, just because we're so connected. I mean, you know, if you go out to eat now, you can take your phone. I don't really want to go out in this stuff, but you can take your phone, scan the little right. bar, right? And then yep. click it to pay your bill. That's right. And I, I don't remember that 10 years ago. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, but that was yeah. there for years. So. Yeah, David and I talked to, to organizations and then the owners and, and the leadership usually do understand that the, the brand is is what's affected by something like a breach or something. Yeah. That it's the brand that suffers. And because of it that, is. that's what takes the company out because once you lose that, that public facing trust, and once that's gone, uh, you, you can't recover from that overnight. You can recover the financial loss, you know, hopefully, but the brand issue is what we try and, uh, is what we try and teach our clients is that that's what you have to protect, right? Is the brand. And, you know, I, I would not have wanted Nyhart to be associated with a data breach and that people associated cybersecurity breach with Nyhart. Because that, mm -hmm. that was the brand. That was the name. And that's not what we wanted connected to it. Yep. Uh, let me ask you this. Have um, just just in kind of in, in wrapping up a little bit. Sure. Have you. Um, how how can organizations become more socially responsible like i i love the fact yeah, that great you question. have yeah. i love the fact that you have put that at the forefront with this company that you founded and you even have your own children involved um so what advice do you have about organizations or people within an organization that especially some of the young millennials and gen z's that are really driven by purpose and cause and want to make a difference yeah, to me you got to do as of everything you got to quantify this stuff so like for example um it was very important at nyhart that we had gender diversity in the executive ranks i can quantify that so if you're a company and you want to do this sort of thing those are the ways you give symbols back to the people right mm -hmm. um i want to be able to say like ed for the new company up in noir i'm taking five percent of all revenue and i'm actually creating a corporate foundation my son's running the corporate foundation. Epe Noir will cover all his costs. I don't want the foundation to cover anything, but I want to dump the money into the foundation. And all we're going to do is provide scholarships for what I would consider to be what was important to us. Because I wasn't born in the United States. My mom was born in Korea. I was born in Korea. So from an immigrant and other perspectives, I you know I have some personal reasons for this. So, you know, it's build scholarships for, for children of need in that manner. And so I think companies got to look at themselves and say, what's important to you? 
and then what am I going to do according with it? You know, that was one of the nice things Patagonia did when they came out. You know, they said, I'm taking 1% of all my profits and putting it into environmental causes. I think you've got to find out for you as an organization what's important to you. And right. I certainly know it's important in the future. I, we will not look the way we look today, 10 years from now. I do believe this younger generation is going to force change up the pipe. Um, yep. Yeah, it seems that they, they, they clearly seem to have even more momentum yes. than the boomers did post 60s and 70s. Like, it, it really mm -hmm. seems to have a lot of momentum because the people in charge, we were tempered by the 60s and 70s, right? And, you know, my, yep. I have two older brothers who uh, grew up in, in, in the 60s. And so even though even those people that are kind of in charge, as they say right now, right, they are yep. still as conservative as they might be sometimes, they clearly are much more open-minded than my parents and my grandparents' generation sure. was. Yep. And that's why I think in the future it will be the same way. And, you know, you flip back to tech where you guys asked about that, you know, we're gonna have a lot of tech firms out there and they're generally run by younger people. Oh yeah. And they'll force change all the way across the board. And, and, and you know, they're gonna wanna work for a company in general that they feel like they that matches them personally too. So. You're just a lot of things going on and, and for me it's it's and my kids it's kind of personal to want to go ahead and try to change this sort of thing and uh mm -hmm. um and, and see what can happen so um, we'll see what happens well tom it has been an absolute pleasure thank you well, thank so you, much yeah, yeah absolutely you are uh, you were truly a good human being tom <laughs> it's the yeah. best i can put that you really are yeah i really i really appreciate your time with us today that uh You've, you've moved me, informed me, and, and actually motivated me on a couple different measures. So thank you. No, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate talking with you. And, you know, if it was video, I would show you the tattoo, but, you know. Um. <laughs> we're, we're, we're proud to see it. Absolutely no, 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 no problem. There it is. There Check it out. <laughs> Epi Noir, Black yeah. Sword. Yeah, well, you That's know, if you awesome. go looking where it really comes from, it'll be from the 60s. So, uh, Awesome. Uh, but it's, it's way out there. So, yep. Tom, thank you so much. And let's, we, we will definitely stay in touch. So, okay. thank yeah. you, gentlemen. Thank you, man. Appreciate I really time. appreciate it. All okay. right. Okay. Take care. Take care. We'll see you later. Take care, bud. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. Hey everyone, we want to invite you to something we promise you will not be disappointed in. Come learn about the rise and fall of one of the world's most iconic brands. In our upcoming bonus episode, we will explore one man's brand that he created when he returned from World War II, recognizing the baby boom and capitalizing on it. He grew that brand, went public, it was worth over $12 billion, and yet in only a few short years, it was dissolved in bankruptcy. It's not what you think. It's not due to economic downturn or uh, the big box stores or Amazon or any tech giants like that. Come find out what happened when we explore the rise and fall of Toys R Us. Imagine all of your professional or career goals coming true and you built a business that had a great brand and employed hundreds or thousands of people. But within a span of a few short years, it was completely gone. That's what's happening in American business these days, and we want to know why. Welcome to Brandology Podcast, where we discuss the rise and fall of great brands and the leadership methods 
which built them or took them down. Your brand is everything that matters. It's your culture, finances, marketing, and leadership. It's your brand. Protect it.